Mysteries to Die For is sponsored by Down and Out Books and imprint All Due Respect. In the psychological suspense thriller, Stalker Stalked, Lexi Mazur learns the only way to beat her stalker is to use her own stalking prowess to turn the game back around. That's her plan. But as she finally met her match, buy, download, and read Stalker Stalked by Lee Matthew Goldberg. A link is in the show notes. Welcome to Mysteries to Die For. I am T.G. Wolf, and I'm here with Jack, my piano player and producer. This is a podcast where we combine storytelling with original music to put you at the heart of murder, mystery, and mayhem. Some episodes will be my own. Others will be classics that help shape the mystery genre we know today. These are arrangements, which means instead of word-for-word readings, you get a performance that's meant to be heard. Jack and I perform these live, front to back, no breaks, no fakes, no retakes. This is season three, Enter the Detective. This season contains adaptations of the first cases of detectives. Some will be characters you know from book, screen, and stage. Others will be lesser known, but with great stories that influenced those who followed. Episode two is about vengeance, love, and no way out. This is Lecoq and the Mystery of Orcival, an adaptation of the Mystery of Orcival by Emile Gabriel. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it is my pleasure to introduce you to the first famed police detective of Paris, Monsieur Lecoq. Lecoq made his first appearance in Gabriel's La Rouge Affair in 1867. He was a subordinate to a detective named Gervaux and was described, this is Lecoq, as an old offender reconciled to the law. He is a smart fellow in his profession, crafty as a fox and jealous of his chief, whose ability he held in light estimation, meaning he doesn't think much of Gervaux. Lecoq spent most of that story following his mentor, a man named Tabaret, around like an errand boy. In The Mystery of Orcival, Lecoq is the featured detective. He is in his 30s, mid-30s, about 35, with bright eyes and a head of black curly hair. But we rarely see him this way because he's always in disguise. Why? Because he's condemned to death by seven of the most dangerous criminals in France. They promised for him to die by their own hands. Five of them he's caught and they are in prison, but the last two are at large. Hence, Lecoq is a master of disguise. So his name, Lecoq, means the rooster, and a beautifully colored rooster is the symbol of France, much as the eagle is our symbol here in the States. There are likely some other puns in there too, as Lecoq is stately. He is confident or arrogant, and I guess it just depends on your personal taste which side of the line he lives on. The Mystery of Orcival was published in 1868, and it's set, for the most part, in Orcival, which is a real region in central France. For us, it would be about a four-and-a-half-hour drive south of Paris. Not how sh- I'm not sure how long the trip would have taken to make back in the 1860s, but definitely longer. And this story begins in early July. Jack, you want to tell us a little bit about our featured author? Before I tell you about our featured author, 
French is a fun language. I don't know if you know that the rooster is le coq. You know what seal is? No. La fuck. <laughs> Family Guy did an entire bit on that. Did they? Yeah. We're going to have to watch that one. It's hilarious. <laughs> Do you know how many of our words are actually French words just said with an American accent? Uh, I don't know how many of them are we stole from the French or the French stole from us. I'm sure it happened both ways. Well, they came first, long before us. Yeah, but like, we were pretty cool. Also, not just <laughs> American English, but also English English. That's true. That's true. Because, you know, we probably stole more words from... I'm going to stop talking because my brain stopped. Emil, that word, lived his life as an editor and writer. Unlike some of the other authors we've featured, he works for the famous French writer Paul Fevral. Fievel. Fevel. Evil Knievel, including as an editor at Favol's magazine Jean Diable. Uh, Gaborio. I don't like. Whatever. Gaborio uh, began publishing his own stories as early as 1861 and had his first noticed success after the La Rouge Affair in 1866. Today's story, The Mystery at Orceval, was published a year later. Gabbert stories were published through 1881, long after his death in 1873. Uh, he died at the age of 40 from what we call preliminary apoplexy. Yeah, I was glad you had to say that word. Apoplexy, which means uh, what? Which kind of means a bleeding heart? You can't write slang into it, okay? Or else I'm gonna read it straight. If you write. And then that's kind of like, and then I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm. if Wikipedia is right, then I have no reason to think it isn't. He had a stroke. Oh, that's... isn't stroke much easier to say than pulmonary apoplexy? And it's a great song by Billy Ocean. Gaborio's work influenced the next generation of detectives. The first story of Sherlock Holmes, which we will do in episode A4, references, references both Lecoq and Poe's Tupin. Many of Gaborio's uh, stories have been adapted for film and television, although not recently. Lecoq isn't a well, as well-known here as Holmes and others. Maybe because they are in French? They're pretty cool stories, so I'm not sure why he's not as famous here. I hadn't really heard of it until I started doing research for this episode. Maybe it's because just the English in general... You know what, actually, I think the fact that his name is Lecoq would make him more popular. I would think. You would think that it would be all over the place. Just, anyway. Because we are American. Yep. So, um, Paul Favelle, the man Emile worked for, he has several mystery and crime novels, too, in his list, and those would have been excellent for us to do. And I'm still looking for an English translation. So if anyone knows where I can find one, especially Jean Diable, please let me know. So we're nearly ready to begin our story. While Jack resets his microphone and figures out exactly what baseline he's going to be doing for the next 30 minutes, I'll explain why we are doing adaptations of these early stories. Two reasons. The language from these earliest mysteries can be very hard to listen to and, and hard to understand. Um, the cadence is different, and there is a lot more semi-colons and phrases. And second, the style and length of the stories weren't created for listening. Today's story, after the English translation, was over 100,000 words. By doing adaptations, we can keep the heart of the story, 
preserving the groundbreaking narrative, but update the packaging for easier digestion. Character names are in the show notes. And so we are ready for Lecoq's first mystery, the mystery at Orcival. Jack, if you will take us in. Chapter 1, A Face in the Crowd Having deposited my meager baggage at the inn, I wandered into the streets for a brush of fresh air. The village of Orceval was known for its scenery and its tranquility. But either the latter was a lie, or something sensational had taken place, as every man, woman, and child streamed with varying degrees of haste up the main road. I joined an older man making the journey. Pardon, monsieur. Could you tell a retired haberdasher what the fuss is about? Have you not heard, the man said? The Count and Countess de Tremoral have been murdered. Murdered, I echoed. Here, in Orcival? I never would have thought it either, he said. But my wife heard from our daughter-in-law, who is friends with the cook for the estate across from the Count. The road wound to the right. Buildings of the village obscured our sight. I had hoped to leave this type of thing behind in Paris, I said. This sort of thing can happen anywhere, the man said, but it is hard to stomach here in our little Orcival, and worse to the Count and Countess, such a good, happy couple as you've ever seen, generous with their people and with the village. Ah, there is my wife. I waved farewell to my new friend and joined a throng amassed outside the ornate gate. I just can't believe it's true, a woman said. Evil truly lives among us. It's not among us, corrected another woman. No one in Orcival would hurt a hair on either of their heads. It was an outsider. They're holding old Bertrand and Philippe, a man said. The old poacher has more than has been up to more than his usual tricks. Tricks, shrieked the first woman. You call stabbing the countess and drowning the count a trick? has to be a mistake, another said. Bertrand may be a liar and a thief, but he's not a killer. He's too lazy for that. The trio continued the conversation around me as though I were invisible. Maybe the boy did it, one said. Philippe was born honest, another said. Takes after his mother, God rest her soul. How did the fiend get into the estate? From the river, I guess. Probably broke his way into the house. One of the women gasped. What? He can murder two people but not break some glass? I drifted away and toward three women with tears running down their faces. It just goes to show, said the tallest, thems that look like they have it all really have nothing. It's such a shame, said the plumpest. After everything Bertha, I, I mean the Countess, has been through, she deserved to be happy. Excuse an old haberdasher, I said, entering the conversation. I have just arrived and find the village upset by a tragedy. What had the Countess been through? Oh, began the shortest. Bertha was a village girl, a rare beauty. Mr. Clement Savesi took one look and fell in love. The two were married and lived here. Theirs was a fairy tale come true. Until, the tallest said, he took to a sickbed. He went out hunting and came home with a fever that kept him in bed for weeks. It wasn't weeks, the plumpest said, but he did languish. I heard that he came out of the fever, but had taken his energy. His beloved Bertha nursed him herself. 
with the help of his dearest friend, Count Hector de Tremorel. The shortest wiped her tears. On his deathbed, in front of all of the house servants, he gave his wife to his best friend. He said, never did two people deserve each other more. Generous to the end, she said, before breaking down. They both mourned for a year, the tallest said. Always proper, those two. On the anniversary of Sovesi's death, they married. They rarely are away from the estate for more than a few days. Dedicated to each other, they are, and to this village. Hmm, how long have they been married, I asked. Just half a year, said the shortest. They married on the winter solstice. They didn't have children. Not yet, she sobbed. Oh, they would have been beautiful children. The other women closed in on her, consoling and grieving in the same breath. I moved on to a group of men who stood studying the door as if they could see through it. A burglary gone wrong, said the stouter. Undoubtedly, the taller responded. There's no way to think about it. It happened on a night when all the servants had gone off to a wedding. Exactly, his friend said. The only night the Count and his lady are truly alone since Savesi died, and this happens. It stinks like my wife's fish sauce. Did you hear they can't find Gaspen? said a second. The gardener? Didn't he go to the wedding? He left with the other four, the teller said, but he went his old own way when they arrived at the train station. He hasn't been seen since. The listener whistled. You think he did it? The first shrugged. He's a gambler, no doubt. I suppose he could have been after a quick coin. Nah, the other said after a moment. You don't get a quick coin by killing a count. You get the gallows. A shout went up. The focus was three men. The two on the outside pushed the one in the center toward the gate. The man was drunk, staggering as he walked. That's him, the starter one said. Gaspen. Oh, I hope he gets what's coming to him, doing the count and countess like that. The gate opened. The crowd pressed, but only Gaspen and his minders entered. I moved from group to group, listening to the wisdom of the crowd. I heard again and again about the loss of the Countess's first husband. The Count was his very good friend, who had been invited to live with the couple after the Count tired of the Parisian life. The Count had been courting a local girl, Laurence Cartois, the eldest daughter of the village mayor. The courtship ended with Savesi's illness. The good Count devoted his time and energy to his friend's health. It was a measure of the man that he granted Savesi's dying wish and married his wife, securing her future. The gate did not open again until I'd been a part of the crowd for a full two hours. When it did, two men came through and climbed on something to be seen over the crowd. All of you, said a middle-aged man with an air of thinking he was in charge. We appreciate your faithfulness to the Count and Countess de Tremoral, but it's time for you to return home. Who is that? I asked the woman next to me. Oh, that's Mayor Courtois. He does a decent job of it, even if he thinks too much of himself. With him is Papa Planta, the Justice of the Peace. A fair man, and very good with flowers. Questions were asked, but not answered. The crowd slowly dwindled, and I made my way up to the front. You, said the mayor, you have no business here. But I do. I am the detective sent by the prefect of police. I am... Monsieur Lecoq. Chapter 2 
witness the evidence. In the formal entryway of the country estate of the Count and Countess de Tremorel, three men stood before me with varying degrees of hostility. The mayor, Courtois, disapproved of my waiting two hours to reveal myself. The fact that he did not understand I was working, collecting valuable background information, spoke for itself. The Justice of the Peace, Plata, was anxious. Without a doubt, Orcival was not a place where double murders were commonplace. Petty thefts, drunken brawls? Yes. Bloody murders? No. Platat was anxious to hand the weight of the case off to broader shoulders. The third man was the doctor called to the scene, Dr. Grandron, and he had his own unique reputation. The villagers were surprised the doctor had stayed at the scene as he was famous for only working three hours a day. The rest of his time was dedicated to his experiments. He appeared to wish to move on to the next part of his day. That would have to wait. Have the bodies been moved? I asked the trio. Only the Countess has been found, Courtois said. We have not moved her, waiting for your delayed arrival. We have men looking for the Count's body. We believe he may have been drowned. There is a great deal of blood here, as you see. He opened his hand to the very obvious pool of blood at the foot of the stairs. Heavy drops doubted the staircase from the upper level to the floor and then off to our left. Their bedchamber has been turned upside down, he said. Certainly, we are looking at a theft gone wrong. In the true spirit of a politician, Courtois spoke even though he was the only one listening. That was arrogant of me. Perhaps Platon and Grandon listened. For myself, I left him to his speech, following the trail up the stairs. At the elaborate doors to the master's chamber, a bloody handprint was distinct on the doorframe. It was positioned as though someone had reached out for support as they fell. The person was about my height, as the print was where my hand would have landed should I stumble. The bedchamber, in its natural state, would have been richly furnished. A large bed with two pillows, shared by the couple. A table with two padded chairs would be comfortable for a light breakfast or evening tea. Two upholstered chairs with footstools were arranged in front of a bay window overlooking the garden, a delicate table between them. There was no dresser here, just tables on either side of the bed for convenience. The fireplace was large, as they tend to be in a house of this size. The hearth was scrubbed clean as it wasn't needed in early July. The deep mantle held a handsome clock, two lamps, and the feminine touches of decoration. The room as I found it now still held all those fundamental elements, but in a very unnatural state. The bed had been slept in, the cover no longer smooth and tidy. The drawers of the nightstand were open, their contents, contents discarded on the floor. The table and chairs were overturned. The teapot laid on its side, but was intact. Two teacups and saucers did not fare as well from the drop. There was a great deal of blood here. A large circle of it had pulled on the table and then, when the table was tipped, had run down in rivulets and stained the carpet. Only the oil lamps remained on the mantel. The more delicate mementos were reduced to shards of glass and china. The glass over the clock face was cracked. The hands were frozen at 3.20. The upholstered chairs had not escaped this fiend. All the cushioning was slashed and the stuffing pulled through the jagged tears. It's obvious what happened, said the mayor. The Count and Countess were in bed when they heard an intruder. 
The countess was killed here and her body dragged to the river. The count was forced out, walked to his watery grave. I examined the table setting more closely. The teapot had retained a small amount of tea. The carpet was still damp. One teacup had the residual of the dry tea. The other had neither the feel nor the scent of tea. It had not been used. Through a connecting door, we entered the room that was used for dressing. This room was even more disturbed. Perhaps it was an illusion as there was more in this room to be disturbed. All articles of dress had been flung out of the wardrobes. The fine china cabinets were as empty as if they had just been delivered. Here again, the furniture of the upholstered sitting area was now gutted with their entrails exposed. Platant lifted a bisected pillow. Someone did a thorough job of search. Search, the mayor echoed. You think they found what they were looking for? I inspected a cabinet designed for a lady. The door was locked and the lock had held. The same could not be said for the wood. It had been split in two. Not up here, I said. If they had, they would have stopped. We climbed to the top floor. Here, the servants' quarters had escaped the tumult. The only thing out of place was a small hatchet. It laid in an empty room, a few paces away from the window overlooking the rear garden. Through this window, I could see two guards standing over a white sheet near the water's edge. Our killer was interrupted, I said. Why do you think that, Platette asked. I crouched down, tracing the dent made in the hardwood floor. You see these marks? The hatchet was thrown down, as if in frustration or anger. If it had been simply dropped, the marks would not be so deep. And look at the odd position. I rose, standing where one would stand if it was merely dropped. The eave of the roof forced my head to the side. No one would stand here. They would stand in front of the window. I took a large step backwards. He hears something, sees something, and then throws the hatchet down. I see, Platon said. What interrupted him? I do not know yet. Let us continue our reconnaissance. Our little train returned to the ground floor. In the dining room, three empty bottles of wine laid haphazardly on the table. I sniffed each of them. One was especially sour. Food and dishes were strung over the 12-foot length. Heartless devils, the doctor said with a sneer. Five of them, at least. They killed the Count and Countess and then ate and drank to their success. Perhaps, I said, studying the arrangement closely. Or, perhaps it is what somebody wants us to think. Let us continue. The trail of blood thinned as it led us out to a garden room, out glass doors whose panes had been broken, to the rear lawn. The glass betrayed where the body had been, the grass betrayed where the body had been dragged from the house toward a wide berth of the Seine River. We found one of the Count's slippers on the grass, the mayor said. The troop approached the white sheep. The guard stepped back to give us room as I pulled the cover back to reveal the battered and bloodied remains of a young woman. How old were the Count and Countess, I asked. The Count was 29 and the Countess 22, Courtois said, his voice breaking. She was the pride of Orceval. She wasn't born a lady and yet she was the f one of the finest we had ever known. She was, Grandjean said. Aside from your own Lawrence, Platat added. The Countess laid face down on pebbled ground. Her blonde hair was streaked with red, the blood congealed and all but solid. In her back, 
a single knife wound was revealed when her hair was moved. A knife, maybe the same, maybe different, had been brutally taken to her face to the extent that I could not see a hint of the beauty the villagers spoke of. Her dress was stained with blood and in her hand was a piece of fabric. Does anyone recognize this? I handed it to Platat, the nearest, who passed it around. Why, this matches the vest Gaspen was wearing, the mayor said. The doctor took the fabric. I do believe you're right. This will certainly hang him. Perhaps, I said. Chapter 3. A Suspect, Then Two. The Countess had been carried into her home, and Grandron released to do the post-mortem. I had my suspicions on what he would find, but did not share them. It was important to the case that the doctor not be influenced by my assertions. The remaining three of us returned to the Count's office, using it as our own. Courtois, the mayor, moved quickly to the desk, a shallow assertion of power. What shall we do next, Monsieur Lecoq? I understand you have several men detained, I said, more than comfortably seated in a high-backed chair. Who was it that found the Countess? The mayor leaned back, the chair creaking under his weight. Jean and Philippe Bertrand, father and son, poachers and thieves by nature. Platon get a shake of his head. Jean Bertrand has always lived off the land. He works enough, fishes and hunts. He doesn't always follow the rules of a civilized culture, but he is harmless. He is not, said the mayor. He has no respect. I interrupted. I would like to hear their story, separately, of course. The father was brought before us. He was unshaven and his clothes hung off his wiry frame. He was surly with the police escorting him. Monsieur Bertrand, I am Monsieur Lecoq of the Paris Police. Understand your position, it is precarious. I need straight answers to my straight questions. You found the Countess de Tremorel. Tell me about the circumstances leading up to your discovery. Bertrand sneered at the mayor and the justice of the peace. Then he turned his gaze to me. My boy and I were up at dawn to fish, as is our usual habit. The sun wasn't full up yet, but it was bright enough to see by. We put in and were settling in when we see something out of place on the shore. We rode toward it. I interrupted. What made you go toward it? Curiosity, he said. It was big and bright and didn't have any business being there. Wasn't there the day before, that's for certain. So you rode up to the shore? No, he said. The river is too shallow. We went back to our pier, just down river, and walked back. When we saw it was a lady, we went to the mayor. His disapproving gaze went to the man behind the desk. We did our civic duty, and what's our reward? My boy and I put in closets under lock and key. No food, no water, no piss pot. I ordered Bertrand taken to the kitchen and allowed basic comforts while we talked to his son. Philippe shared his father's height and his face, but his back was straight and strong. The boy, no more than 17, looked for his father. All is well, I said. Your father has given his testimony and has been given food and water, as will you after we talk. It is very important, Philippe, that you tell me the truth. I am on the hunt for a murderer. Philippe nodded. 
Papa woke me before sunrise. He surprised me. Usually, I wake him. I dressed and we went to our boat. Here, he hesitated. Was there something wrong with the boat, I asked? He swallowed. One of the oar pins was near breaking. Papa noticed while he was bailing out the bottom. He sent me to find wood so he could make another. His gaze fell guiltily to the floor. You went on to the Count's property, I said, surmising what a young man would do. It was only a bit of wood, he said. Then he raised his eyes to me. As soon as I crossed the little stream, I saw her. Did you approach her, I asked. No, I froze, waiting for her to move. When she didn't, I ran back to Papa. He said it wasn't our business, but a lady was dead. Did you know it was the Countess, I asked. I suppose, if I had thought about it, I may have guessed it was her, but I wasn't thinking. I was running. Very good, I said. I gave orders to the police to bring the father back and offer food and comfort to the boy. The bit of food and drink had improved the father's disposition. Was there something else you needed? He asked with a self-important smile. You were out earlier, before the sun rose, I said, extrapolating from Philippe's account. What did you see? The grin slipped from his face. What makes you think I saw anything? I slammed my hand on the desk. If it is games you want to play, it is back to the closet for you. All right, he said, all right. I was out earlier. What was the time? Three, three thirty. I saw someone moving about the property, a shadow. A man was on the third floor. I, I couldn't see his face, just a shape of him. You didn't investigate, I stated. Not my business, said he, chin raised. I ordered him held in a room, not a closet. And once alone, the Justice of the Peace and Mayor and I conferred on the two men. Bertrand very well may have dragged the count away, Courtois said. Not Philippe, Platant said. The boy was born honest. If Bertrand had a role, he played his part before dawn. I stroked my mustache. It would be an excellent plan to begin his day as normal, but he made a mistake waking his son rather than playing possum. Let us hear what the gardener has to say. Guess Ben was brought in. The man stank as if he sweated alcohol. He was finally dressed for a wedding that he never attended, and now those clothes were soiled and wrinkled as if he'd slept in them. I introduced myself and made his position clear. He did not have Bertrand's defiance or Philippe's innocence. This man appeared defeated. You went with the other servants of the house to the wedding of the former cook. At this train station, you went your own way. Why? "'Tis my own business,' he said. "'This is a murder investigation,' I said. "'Everything is my business. "'Now where did you go?' "'Just an errand I had to run. "'It had nothing to do with the wedding "'or whatever happened here.' "'But you won't tell me about this errand.' "'He shook his head. "'Gispen,' Plata said. "'How do you account for the 167 francs "'you attempted to discard?' How do you account for your fellow servant reporting that you had to borrow 25 for the train ticket? Gaspan didn't respond. He only looked more miserable. Take off your vest, I ordered. Gaspan looked confused, but he complied. I took the worn material in my hand and found the defect in the lining. The piece of the material was missing of the size, shape, and type that matched the piece found in the Countess's hand. It will be the gallows, the mayor said. The door opened and an unhappy servant entered. Baptiste, the mayor said. What are you doing here? Madame needs you, monsieur. 
immediately. A letter arrived. She read it and she fainted, fainted straight away. The mayor left us, practically running out the door. Chapter 4. The Facts Beneath the Facts It seems it is just you and I, Platant said. The facts as we know them appear to point to a conspiracy between Gaspen, the gardener, and Bertrand, the fisherman. The pair, knowing the house was empty of servants, attacked the Count and Countess and then robbed the house of money. They made their escape, taking the Count with them, perhaps, and then staged their entrances. Is that how it looks to you, Monsieur Lecoq? You have succinctly described how it is meant to look to us, Monsieur Platat, but that is not what happened. Let us return to the bedroom. Humoring me, Platat followed me up the stairs. It was all as we left it, which is to say, it was a mess. I began with the mantel clock, the glass broken and the hands frozen at 3.20. Rotating the minute hand to 12, the clock began to chime. One, two, three, four, five, what? Platon exclaimed, it should have stopped at four. How many is that? Eleven, I said. The clock did not stop at 3.20, but hours earlier, likely around 10.20. Her criminal is clever, but only by half. He reset the hands, but forgot to reset the chime. 10.20 makes more sense. If the, crime, if the time of the crime had indeed been the middle of the night, the countess would have been in her bedclothes. Instead, she was in a dress. More, she was sitting at this table drinking tea. The pot had been near to full when the table was tipped over. A table set for two, Platat said. But the bed. Let us take a closer look, I said. When making a bed appear slept in, it's easy to ruffle the top covers by the head and shoulders. But it is difficult to do the same with the bottom, where feet dislodge the sheets. If you will assist me, let us see if the whole bed was disturbed. It took some work for the two of us to examine the bed without disturbing the very evidence we sought. You are right, Platak cried. The bed was not slept in. The disturbance was superficial. What the deuce happened here? It was not a rhetorical question. Are we in agreement that the Countess was killed here, at this table, I asked. With the amount of blood spilled, it seems irrefutable, he said. I stood in proximity to the stain. If we put things in a logical order, the Countess was attacked first. If not, she would have been found by the door behind the bed, someplace that would reflect her fear of the attack. She wasn't afraid, Platat said. She didn't see it coming. I suspect no. I suspect Dr. Grandon will find that she died from a single blow. Impossible, Platat said. You saw her. Indeed, I said, there was a single vicious blow to her upper back. Where she was sitting, the force would have driven her head into the table. That is the one that bled. That is the one that I suspect killed her. The others were for effect. It was one hell of an effect, Platat said. What happened next? Next, a search began. Something was critical for the killer to find. Filled with the power of his kill, he was not neat nor precise. He caused the clock to fall. He emptied the drawers in the dressing room. Platat was quiet for a moment, introspective. Did he find it? That I don't know. 
I suspect he was interrupted. The third floor window, Platat said. Someone saw him. Berton? Possibly, I said. Whatever the interruption, the killer then began setting the stage for us. He set the dining room table with wine, and that was a mistake. Did you happen to smell the bottles? No. One was vinegar. Five people did not sit down to that table and eat or drink. Not even one person spent time doing that. Platant was a smart man, an experienced man. My description lifted the curtain on the play, and now he could see the truth. The drag marks to the grass were from the Countess. The slipper was hers. She wasn't thrown onto the sandy ground, was she? No, I said, she was set. And that is when the fabric from Gaspin's vest was put into her hand. She was killed in the bedroom, carried to the lawn, and then dragged the 200 steps to the shore. Were the fabric in her hand at the time she was attacked, as is the implication, it would not have been there when she was unceremoniously dumped. Plantat nodded as he thought. Does this acquit Gaspin? It could, I said, were he to tell us his whereabouts. As it is, it is impossible that he, it, as it is, it is possible he could have returned to the estate and been a party to the misdeeds. But, Platon said, if he were an accomplice, certainly he would not have allowed fabric from his vest to be placed in the hand of the victim. Gentlemen, Grenon said, entering the office, a discerning look on his face, I have some unexpected news from the post-mortem. The Countess died from a single blow, I said. His eyes widened. She did. The blow was just above her left eyebrow. It was made with a long, somewhat sharp object. That would, would the edge of a table suffice? Platant asked. Garon gasped. It would. It would indeed. Only the killing blow and the one on her back were made while she was alive. The rest were made after death. Hours after her death, in my opinion. Is there any word on the count? No, I said. And I think we've done all we can do for tonight. Let's lock down the house, and tomorrow we will begin again. Platant nodded. Jean Bertrand and Gaspon will be placed under arrest. Philippe will be released. Where are you staying tonight, Lecoq? I dropped my bag at the little inn, I said. It is an easy walk from here. You will stay with me tonight, Platant said, giving no option. He sent a man on his way to inform his staff of their guests. Let us go to the mayor's house on the way. I'm anxious to know how his wife is. The house was closed up and the guards posted. The three of us proceeded to the mayor's home where we found the entire household upset. Grenade attended to Madame Courtois, giving her something to serve her, soothe her nerves. How is it possible, my friend, Courtois said to Platon, how could my Lawrence throw her life away? Platon's eyes were glassed over as he read the letter. Courtois' eldest daughter, Lawrence, couldn't live with disgracing her family. The letter was her goodbye to those she loved and those who loved her. Do you know, I began gently, who the father could be? Does it matter, the aggrieved father cried out. The Count Tremorel, Platat said. He courted Lawrence. We all thought the two would marry, but circumstances changed. It appear, my new friends, that circumstances have changed again. Chapter 5. An Evening with Platon. Platon was Orsifal's Justice of the Peace and a Master Gardener. 
The finest gardens in Paris will dull and pale compared to the grounds of this virtuoso. His home itself was simple and neat, with only two servants, a woman somewhat older than Platat's mid-fifties, who was his cook and housekeeper, and a gentleman who served as a caretaker for the home and gardens. It took little time to deduce that my presence as a guest was unusual. A whispered comment from the cook revealed it had been years since the guest room had been used. As the day had been very long and I had not eaten, I was grateful for the meal and the bed. After eating, though, Platon and I retired to his library. I had a mind to retire early, but Platon had other ideas. I wish to tell you a story, Lecoq. It does not have a happy ending, and it is, if you understand, for your ears only. He turned from a bookcase, a leather-bound tome in his hand. Do you care to hear it? Platon looked different as he faced me. His expression was a stew of anger, sadness, and disgust. While I longed to put my head on my pillow, I nodded and crossed my leg. Do tell. Platon sat in a beloved chair, worn in ways that showed it was used often. He placed a book on his lap and he opened it. Clement Savesi was my friend. He inherited his money young, but he handled it well, quickly doubling what his father had left him. On a visit to Orsaville, he met and fell in love with the beautiful girl, Bertha. Bertha's father was a merchant and worked hard, but he was a pauper compared to Savesi. The two were married in Paris while renovations were made to the house here. The couple moved in immediately and lived a charmed life. At least, it looks so to all of us. On a business trip to Paris, Savesi ran into an old friend, Count Hector de Tremorel. The Count lived the life of a spendthrift and was about to take the honorable way out. Just that morning, the bailiff had arrived at his home and claimed everything in it to pay Hector's debts. Upon hearing this, Savesi intervened. He brought Hector here, to Orceval. He and Bertha nursed Hector's body and mind while Savesi dealt with his finances. Savesi was sharp and, though just thirty, well tested. Savesi saved the Count's estates and was able to sell assets at a much higher rate than the bailiff would have gotten and as such, did not have to sell everything. Things were going well, and the three showed the outside world nothing but smiles. But it's not true, I said. How many times, when a crime is committed, those standing outside the windows cry that the victim was loved by all? Platon smiled weakly. Suvesi loved his wife, loved his friend, but his devotion was not returned. The Count may have stopped throwing his money in the Seine, but he had a weakness for women. When he came to Orceval, he had left behind a paramour in Paris, a woman known as Jenny. Savesi would take the Count to the train station weekly for the two to have lunch. She was as dedicated to the Count as Savesi was to his wife. But, I said, the Count was not dedicated to this Jenny, and Bertha was not dedicated to Savesi? Platant bowed his head. The affair took place right under my friend's roof. Bertha became very possessive of her lover. She took exception to Jenny and wrote to her to expose Hector, provoking her to leave Hector. Savesi was blessedly oblivious. He suggested to the Count that he could further show up his finances by marrying well. The Count didn't need a noble woman, just a woman with sufficient dowry, and he suggested Laurence Quartois, the mayor's daughter. 
I gasped. The plot, indeed, had thickened. An introduction was arranged, Platat said, and all parties were interested. The Count took it, couldn't take his eyes off Laurence. She is the most spectacular woman, beautiful inside and out. Laurence was smitten with the Count who possessed those roguish good looks women prefer, and the Count became a regular guest at the mayor's table. Bertha Savesi, his lover, I said. She became jealous? She did, Platon said. She forbade the marriage. But, I said, she herself was married. She was, Platon said. One day, a messenger brings a note to Savesi to arrange a meeting at a train station. It was Jenny. She gave to him the note Bertha had written. Of course, he recognized his wife's handwriting. She had spelled out all the details. I will tell you, Lecoq, Savesi was crushed. He loved his wife. To him, she was wife, lover, and friend. It broke something in him to learn that she was not the same to him. He spent the day out in the wet snow and came down with a fever. It had him in bed for eight days. It was a fierce fever. He ran it in rage. At one point, he was violent, wanting to get out. The only thing that calmed him was moving his bed to a garden room. I sat up with him many of those nights. I had no idea then of the truth behind his delirium. The fever broke, but Savesi was never himself again. He would come and visit, and eventually we spoke honestly. He confided he suspected his wife of poisoning him. Daily he would spit some of the medicine she prepared into a bottle, and that bottle and a manuscript he gave to my keeping. Platant shook his head. I lost my friend long before he died. He became obsessed with vengeance and concocted a plot. You see, he knew the Count, Hector, was truly in love with Lawrence. He also knew his wife was now a shrew who would lie, steal, and kill for what she wanted. He determined they deserved each other. He confronted them, telling him he knew everything. His wife would still inherit, but it was only hers to use until the day she wed Hector. If one year from his death the two were not married, the bottle and the manuscript would be delivered to the police. Savesi thought of every contingency. The two were caught. Either they married, Heather giving up the woman he loved, and Bertha now tied to a man who despised her, or they went to the gallows. On his deathbed, Savesi united the hands of his wife and his best friend in front of me and the entire house staff. He sung praises of their love for him and his dying wish that the two of them be together. After he died, the pair were not seen in the village for some time. Everyone assumed they were mourning. They married on the anniversary of Savesi's death. As promised, the manuscript and bottom were given to the new countess. She ran off, the count fast behind her. When they returned, she had a smug look on her, and he a rage. I heard him say, where did you put it? And she answered, look for it. Platon closed the book on his lap. That was six months ago. What of Laurence? I asked. Platon's expression softened. She took the new heart. It was unfair that Hector was taken from her. Given her, given her the note, the Count did not stop his advances and the, with the change of his status. If Laurence is with child, she is not far along, certainly not seven months. He aged before my eyes, tears forming but not falling. I think that is enough storytelling for tonight. Let me show you to your room.
All right. This is the part in the story where I'm told to pause so that you can postulate your theory. What happened that night? Who killed the countess? And where is the count? Jack is in a groove. What read? What's happening? I got to the middle part. This is the part where we were supposed to do our witty banter, but you were in a you were in a zone there. We we, we do witty banter. It's very pretty. I like the baseline today. I did not fall asleep in the middle of this. You couldn't fall what. asleep. Your fingers were playing the piano. You can't prove that. I was. I can see you. You can't prove it. <laughs> Everything's an illusion. Nothing's real. Did you listen to any part of the story? I heard about a rooster or chicken, maybe. (laughs) So you have no idea who did it. Dude, he didn't discover anything. Only thing he did. Okay, I'm sorry. But the dude got told half the story. He was just physically told, hey, bro, this is what happened. I disagree. Uh, I don't disagree. I totally agree with myself. <laughs> I think I am 100% right. I thought he did an excellent job of like looking at the evidence in these rooms and deciding that, you know what, this is not one body of evidence, but three different pieces. Three? What, what story what were you really reading? What really happened, <laughs> the search, and then the cover-up of what really happened. You disagree. <laughs> I should have paid more attention. I didn't know there'd be a test. You don't have to pay attention. I don't know how you could pay attention and play the piano the way you do. Oh, I'm not I'm not gonna lie. Um I can't keep anybody apart. Too many white French people, you know. <laughs> you know, we weren't told they were white, but just imagining them, you can just imagine them all looking the same. Right? They all look the same. They all look the same. Right. I think that's half the reason why Americans don't look the same is because we're literally from everywhere. I would agree. That's why you can pick three people out of our entire population and you're not going to find a doppelganger. (laughs) It's we just have too much genetic diversity. Yeah. I mean, we're not even the natives of this place, you know. I do know. Yeah. So that's, you know. What were we talking about? Who did it? Oh. Um, who did what? Who killed the countess? Despite the fact that the count is missing? Yeah, they said the count is dead, but the count wasn't dead. The count's just missing. Well, you know how people gossip. You can't trust what's said out in the streets. They don't know. That's stupid. No, (laughs) I feel like they'd care enough. Oh, the, the count, I think that's, like very important information oh the count's missing and the countess is dead or whatever it is the duchess wait that's dutch whatever yeah but like it's way more interesting that he's missing than thinking oh they're just both dead no he is missing she is dead and he is not on the property i feel like we haven't even addressed the one nomad dude it's i feel like the 17 year old has to have more to do with it because the only purpose he served was to say that the his dad was a liar, basically. Well, he didn't say it, but he accidentally proved it. Right. And it doesn't make sense. So much of this stuff doesn't make sense to miss. 
All right, you don't hide that, what he did. You don't hide the fact, oh, I saw a guy in the room, by the way. You don't hide that unless you're guilty. Unless you're doing something you don't want to be caught doing. He had no reason to keep that information. Yeah. I understand if he doesn't like them, but why would he prevent the police? from? It just doesn't make sense. It just seems like you're out to spite people. Okay, we'll come back to that after we, uh, after we reveal the who did it, okay? Okay. But before we get to that... Here's a call for all mystery lovers. Meet my sharp-tongued amateur detective Diamond in her first adventure, Widow's Run. Diamond had nothing to lose. Husband, job, house, life, they were all gone. What she had now was a purpose. Find the SOB who killed her husband. When you have nothing to lose, there are no rules. Read Widow's Run in bed, on the train, while waiting for your kids to finish practice. It's available in paperback and ebook from your favorite bookseller, or listen to it on Mysteries to Die For, Season 1. All right. Chapter 6 Following the Breadcrumbs. The next morning, Patat and I traveled to the judge's office. The judge of instruction wore a sour expression, making it clear he had expected us earlier. While you were inspecting the house, I sent men to investigate the alibis. The insult. You have Lecoq on the case, I said, Monsieur Dominey. There is no need for other detectives. Dominey shrugged. You are one man, Lecoq, and you are needed at the estate. I sent good men, capable men, and it has borne fruit. One was able to trace Gospin's movements. He left the train station, leaving his friends to go to a merchant. Using a 500-franc note, he purchased a hammer, a hammer, chisel, file, and a long-bladed dagger. From the merchant, he went and met a woman. They died, drank, and then left together. The judge leaned back, satisfied. Good, I said. What was the description of the blade? Domini frowned. He didn't ask. So we cannot tell, I said, if it was the murder weapon. What was the woman's name? What did she look like? I asked five more rhetorical questions, all that pointed to the fact that the job of detecting had been done poorly. Still, it was more than what we had. Gispen was interviewed again. With the information Dominie's man had procured, we pried the first bit of information from the gardener. The Count had given him an errand and a 500-franc note. He purchased the list and delivered the items as directed. He confirmed the woman knew the Count but didn't reveal her name. He didn't need to. It could only have been Jenny. With Gaspen back in the cell to contemplate his future, we three discussed what we knew and what we suspected. It is my supposition, I said, that the Count murdered his wife. When you untangle the scene, that is what was left for us. It's the only solution that makes sense. But why, Dominie asked. The two were a happy couple. In public, perhaps, I said. In private, I suspect that was not the truth. The Count had plans to marry Laurence Cartois. I believe, to be bold, that the Mademoiselle told the Count that she carried his child, and he concocted this plan to free themselves of the ties that bound them. The top blinked several times. Laurence, she lives? I suspect so, I said. The Count left nothing, taking, or the Count left taking nothing. Why would a man do such a thing? A woman, Dominie said. The woman, Platoc corrected. After considering the alternatives, a man such as the Count has 
you know, famous for disappearing, though to be kidnapped, he could not show his face in public, and so he would need a disguise and a new name. He hasn't gone far, Domini said, has he? Not yet, I said. It is time I took this investigation back to Paris, where a man and his bride can get lost in a crowd. Upon my return home, I gathered those who I trusted and gave them assignments. My tasks were to find the Count, of course, but also Jenny. I didn't scour the city, but discreetly contacted a few people with special skills. By nightfall, I had an appointment with a woman from whom Jenny had bought her dresses, and I knew which upholsterer had furnished an apartment to an American couple on the exact day the Count vanished. A message came from Platant asking me to meet. I accommodated him, inviting him to my home the next morning. By God, he said, what happened to your blonde hair? I smiled. I have been with the police for years and, being good at my profession, have made enemies. Eight have promised to kill me. Two are still at large. You saw the plaque above my door, the stately French cock and my motto, always vigilant? That is how I stay alive and relevant. Platon nodded. What a life. It is my choice, I said. Now what can I do for you? He took a deep, fortifying breath. It is Laurence. She is innocent in all of this. She is a young woman, seduced by a title and a roguish smile. When you find the Count, and I have every confidence you will, I ask you, I beg you, to keep her out of the fallout. I studied this man who steadfastly worked by my side. He was in his fifties but bore himself well, but with the sadness that weighed his shoulders down. You loved her, I said. He startled, nearly jumped, but ultimately nodded. I know the age difference, he said. Life has played a cruel joke on me, bringing her into my life. She was just a child, and I am not a pervert. I have contented myself to being her friend. I listened to her talk about the Count. Her feelings were real. Protecting her complicates matters, I said, as much to myself as to Platon. No storming the castle. The shoulders of his folded in more. That would be disastrous. We'll have to separate them, I said. And then I knew how I would do it. Come, my friend. I will have my killer, and you will save your flower. We began with the businesswoman, whose dresses are paid for on credit. She and I have a symbiotic relationship, having helped each other out from time to time. Platon and I were in a side parlor waiting when Jenny came in. In her mid-twenties, she was a pretty woman who had a hard way in life. My friend, the madame, made a gentle entry into the conversation and brought us in. Hector killed his wife? She shook her, shook her head. I should be surprised, but really I'm not. You had a role in it, mademoiselle, I said. You met the gardener, Gaspen. Tell us what happened. It is in your own best interest. I met Hector, the Count, a few weeks ago. He told me about the cook's wedding and how he was worried the gardener, an ex-lover, would cause a disruption. I suggested he send the gardener on an errand. We concocted it together. After Gaspan and I met, we had dinner, and I plied him with drinks. We walked through Paris until nearly midnight. We sat down on a bench near the Arc de Triomphe, and he fell asleep. I left him there. Good, I said. Did you take the items he brought you? Yes, she said. I still have them. Double good. 
One of my men will go with you to retrieve them, and then you'll go to the police and give your statement. Be as detailed as you can. Gaspen's neck depends upon it. Back out on the street, Platette ran his hand through his hair. It was the Count. It really was. I don't know what to think. Bertha killed Savesi, but that does not make it easy to accept the Count killing her. Of course not, I said. The Countess severely underestimated her husband's motivation. He was leaving her, and when she wouldn't let him go, there was no need to finish the sentence. Instead, we went into a wine bar I frequented. One of my men waited there for me. Have you discovered the Count's location, Renoir? I have, he said. He's using the name James Wilson. He and his young wife are supposedly American. They speak English to each other. Laurent speaks English, Platon said. How did you find this out? I made an acquaintance with their footman, he said. He has only been in their employ for a few days. The newly married couple came from New York. He knows, no, he knows little except the wife seems to be missing her home. She cries a lot. The husband is very attentive. He never leaves her side. That is a problem, Patant said. Not an unexpected one, I said. This is our plan. Send Guillaume to the Count, posing as a messenger for the upholsterer. He is to say that four of the thousand franc notes used for furniture were counterfeit, according to his bank, and he needs an instant explanation or he will be forced to turn the matter over to the police. The Count will, of course, go to meet the upholsterer. That will be your opportunity, Pétain. You will have to talk to Lawrence, calm her, and get her to leave with you that instant. Then my men and I will wait for the Count to return. My plan was put in motion. The Count left his newly rented house immediately upon receiving the message. Renoir approached the house first, gaining entry being recognized. I followed with Platant and a dozen men. We found Lawrence in her bedroom. She was shocked by my entrance, her chin rising, her eyes alight. Who are you? What are you doing in my bedroom? I stepped aside. Her entire body softened. Papa Platant, what, what are you doing here? I've come to save you, Lawrence. You must leave with me, right now, he said. Her expressive face changed again, this time to shame. I, I can't. You don't understand. It is you who don't understand, I said. The Count has killed his wife. I have a warrant for his arrest. He what? It does explain so much, she said softly. Then she looked at me with a determined strength of character. I want five minutes with him before you take him. We argued with her, Platant and I, and we lost. As you like, but the house is surrounded, you will be surrounded. Understand how this is going to end. My men scattered to strategic positions. Platant and I were in the adjacent room, able to hear all, and capable of quickly reaching Laurent should things go sideways. Pack your things, the Count said, bounding into the room. We must leave, now. What have you done, Lawrence asked calmly. The upholsterer didn't send the message. We have to move on. The Count was emptying the drawers of her dresser. No, she said firmly. It's over, Hector. The police are here. The house is surrounded. Is it true you murdered the Countess? The Count took her hands. She had no soul, Lawrence. She killed Savesi and swore she would never let me go. It was her or I. Lawrence pulled her hands from his, went to the desk and opened the drawer. There is only one choice now, she said, stepping back. Honor. 
There are two pistols in the drawer. He looked. What will you do, he asked. Follow you, of course, she said without hesitating. The Count went to her and withdrew a pistol. Beside me, Platant was a dog ready to pounce. The Count put, his put the gun to his head, but he didn't pull the trigger. If we went out the window, they're in the garden, she answered. If we got to the roof, we could run along the peaks. He set the gun on the table closest to him. Laurence reached into the desk, withdrew the second pistol, and shot the Count in the head. I leapt out of my hiding place as she raised the gun to her own head. It scudded across the floor as I took her down to the rug. No, Laurence, I said softly. That is not the solution. That is the only solution, she said. I have disgraced everyone, betrayed everyone. And all the strength went out of her and she began to weep. You have not. You have only loved and that is a great thing. I lifted my weight off of her and helped her to stand. Your entire life is ahead of you and that of your child. There is so much to live for. She looked up at me, eyes afloat in a sea of tears. And what name do I give my child? I smiled to ease her. The name of the man who loves you, Planta. Her attention snapped to the man standing quietly in the corner. I have loved you from the first day, he said. The intelligent, charming young woman who knew a peony from an iris. When she chuckled, he held out a hand, his expression one of love. You would make my every dream come true if you were to become my wife. Tears flowed down her face. You and your flowers, she said softly. Then she took his hand. The prefect of police accepted my explanation of how I had no choice but to kill Count Hector de Tremoral to save my own life. Platant and Lawrence were married the next week and traveled to Italy, where they planned to stay for at least a year. Her father, Courtois, sold his estate and moved to a little village in need of a mayor. Gaspin was released from jail, given 30,000 francs, and told to return to his own province. Bertrand was also released and compensated with 10,000 francs and a new boat. Several weeks later, when my head was deep in the next case, I received a letter from Laurence Platant. Included with her and her husband's gratitude was the deed to Platant's estate in Orceval. So did you like the end? No. What didn't you like about it? I'm sorry. I don't think that was stupid. <laughs> you didn't think it was cool that she, she like... I didn't think it was cool that she shot Hector in the back of the head and she was like, I'm going to kill myself. And then all she had to do was look at some 50-year-old dude and say, never mind, I'm good. <laughs> really? Really? All right. You are this not is, that broken up about it, lady. This is what you call a romance. No. But it's not like a modern day romance. This it's is like a French romance. A French romance where yes. it was like you can move from one guy to another in three days. And if not, you just kill yourself. No other option. Nope. I don't know that she looked at Platon and went, ooh, baby, and like dumped Hector. I think it was more like she didn't want to die. And now she had an option with a man that she knew, and he's wealthy enough to take care of her. So I, th I think it was. That's not love. That's just looking for a term that I prefer not to say personally. Well, this is the 1800s. I mean, women didn't have their own money and their own property and stuff. I think it was stupid. 
You know, this story, so what we just read was, I don't know, about 9,000 words. The original story was over 100,000 words. Oh. Needless to say, I left a lot of it on the, on the cutting room floor. So some of the things that you pointed out at our break was really more of a, a problem of the editing. So um, the father, Bertrand, yes, he was thieving and gambling in the middle of the night when he shouldn't have been. And that was why he was able to see the count in his window. So he did not want to admit what he did. Okay. What about Hectorino? Not Hector. Well, the, the, the gardener, Gaspan, he got totally wasted. Jenny got him drunk. And he spent the entire night sleeping on a bench inside of Paris. And he didn't remember the night before. So he couldn't tell the police where he was because he didn't know. Oh, nice. That's <laughs> And yeah, the way the story is set up, they're definitely put out as the first two suspects. And then it's really only Lecoq who keeps saying, maybe, but maybe not. And he keeps sort of unraveling these strings. And yeah, the funny part of the story, you you hit on it exactly, is they don't make a big deal of where's the count. You would think everybody would be like, you know, let's drag the river. Let's do this. But all of a sudden, everybody's just sort of accepting of, oh, huh. And that was probably the most suspicious part of the whole story. But like, why? Why did he do it? No, why didn't anyone care? I don't know. I mean, it might have just been a flaw in the writing. It might have been a flaw in the translation, or it might have been a flaw in the way I read it. But um, other than that, I I actually thought this was one of the most flawless ones that we've read. Like, there's no (laughs) point where I'm like, nope, that doesn't make sense. You don't agree with that, I I, see. I I can't. You could disagree, of course No, I can't disagree. (laughs) I was falling asleep during half of it. I did think the Count Hector was, I mean, he's just a sleazeball. He uh he betrayed everybody who ever cared for him aside from Lawrence. So yeah, yeah. He even set up the gardener to take the fall for him. I don't think I realized how much he actually didn't. I don't know why part of me was just like he got blackmailed so he killed the lady who was blackmailing him. I mean, if in the shortest version of it that is it. Like he wanted to leave her um Savasi did a pretty good job of blackmailing the two of them into marrying each other. And there's I think a, that's so funny. It's not, hey, I'm going to get you in trouble. It's, hey, I'm going to ruin the rest of your lives. Oh, yeah. That's pretty great. And there was a bunch of sort of these, I don't want to say double entendres, but at the beginning there really was these testimony about how, how on his deathbed he's saying that Bertha and Hector deserve each other. And yeah. it's all, you think it's like, well, these are such good people. They deserve each other. And it's like, well, no, these are such horrible people that they deserve each other. Pretty so, good. It was a pretty cool story. <laughs> well, that wraps up this episode of Mysteries to Die For. Support our show by subscribing, telling a mystery lover about us, and giving us a five-star review. Become a member of our Body Bag Brigade by financially supporting this season with a one-time donation. Pay what you can. Information is in the show notes and on our website, tgwolf, that's with two Fs, dot com, forward slash podcast. Mysteries to Die For is written by T.G. Wolf with contribution from Jack Wolf. Title, oh, this title was written by T.G. Wolf and adapted by The Mystery of Orcel by Emile Gabriel. Sorry to Mr. Gabriel's family for continually butchering his name. Music and production are by Jack Wolf. Episode art is by Shannon Leahy. 
A reminder that Mysteries to Die For is brought to you by Down and Out Books. Mysteries and thrillers from your mainstream publishers leaving you feeling like you kissed your best friend? Then you are ready to step down. Down to Down and Out Books. Mysteries, thrillers, and true crime. Gritty, hardcore, and obscure. Twisted, imaginative, and simply fantastic. Stories the way you like them. Discover your next amazing read at downandoutbooks.com. That is spelled out down, A-N-D, out, books.com. And of course, your favorite social media site. All right, Jack, the floor is yours.